0: Our Guide Tell All is sponsored by Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis, so if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who may have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited for our educational content meeting where they're gonna talk all about liability issues for tour guides. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202 335 6141 Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Now on to the Rebecca's.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, 2023 edition. We are coming at you with our first episode of the new year. We hope you all had a safe and healthy, wonderful new year. And we are back for another year of just historical shenanigans, talking to you about all the scandalous and exciting things that have happened in in history. Um, We're your local neighborhood tour guides. As always, I am Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's. Very dramatic for for your first of 2023. I liked it. It was good. So we are here. um, We're kicking off a new year. We first of all want to thank our patrons who have kept us going. We would not be entering our third year of this podcast without our patrons. So a huge thank you. Um, If you've been thinking about getting a patron membership, if you've been thinking about supporting us, this is the best time to do it. It's a great way to spend that extra holiday cashola. You can just for a few dollars a month, get extra episodes, get discounts on tours, get access to all kinds of special content. Um, So this is a great time to do that. Thank you though to all of our our listeners. And it is a new year. So we're always looking for new ideas. If you've got suggestions for the pod topics you want us to cover, this is a great time to reach out to us and let us know because we're building our calendar for the year. And uh, we're kicking off with a, a really good one.
2: We are we're kicking off with a banger, literally. Uh-huh. We want to put a content warning right up. The There's going to be some violence and assault talk. So that's, um you know, just letting you all know that. Um, and we always do the beginning of the uh, year January we talk, we think in Washington about January 6th, which is something that profoundly affected us as guides and as residents of the city and as historians. And so we wanted to do we did this last year as well. We wanted to do something that kind of rhymes with January 6th, something that sort of is feels uh, appropriate to the moment. So we're going to talk a little bit about violence in the Capitol. Uh, which inevitably leads people to the name of Charles Sumner. Charles Sumner is the hero of the story, so we'll just go there. And we are going to bring in this back to 1856 is when this takes place. And we are pre-Civil War, about five years out from the outbreak of hostilities. And kind of where we are, just to sort of place us in history, We are approaching uh, the Civil War and slavery, the sort of discussion about slavery is moving into the sort of final phases that we will move into. It is very clear at this point that there is a division in this country over slavery. Uh, we have had the Missouri Compromise. We have had all those, a lot of the signpost things that you heard about in school that you promptly forgot about. Most of them have happened. Things are not really great. Things are kind of devolving fast. Uh, the debate over slavery has moved from its expansion to total abolition. The North thinks this has decided slavery is wrong and should be abolished rather than just limited. The South is very upset about this. And so there are increasing calls for one side or the other to give way and just sort of move on with our lives. For some additional context to this, you might want to check out our Henry Clay episode. We talk a little bit about this. Henry Clay spends a lot of his career trying to hold off the Civil War, and does a really good job. He's now dead, and the sort of system that he's put in place is falling apart, is kind of where we are. Does that sound fair?
1: Clay is kind of actually the perfect prequel to this. I really believe that. And I think it's important to note to kind of where we are as we get to Sumner is the country is rapidly expanding physically, right? We're moving out West. We're adding new states. Our population is booming. Both um, sort of the general population and the enslaved population is vastly growing in the South. And so this very much impacts things like voting power and Congress uh, and representation and who has voice in Congress because of the three-fifths compromise. So we're starting to really see all of these things that had been the foundational parts of our government that had been a way to sort of like keep these two sides at bay. All of that is coming to a breaking point because the country's getting so much bigger. We're growing so, so quickly and clay is gone. The sort of era of compromise is gone. And this is really coming to a breaking point. We talk about this a little bit in the Clay episode, but there is already violence across the country in regards to this issue. And now that violence is going to start creeping in into the actual floors of Congress.
2: And we're going to get to the sort of specific trigger for this in a minute, which is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But I do want to do a little first some background on Charles Sumner. He's from Massachusetts and actually
1: is born ironically on January 6th. I did not know that until Rebecca put her notes on this together and I looked at that and I thought like that's a great amazing historian connection like that he is born on January 6 is wild to me and for those of you at the end of this episode I think you're all gonna think it's wild.
2: But grows up in Boston. He's like super connected, Boston money family type person. Like you're thinking, like, he's friends with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He knows Horace
1: Mann. Like he's like super duper connected with all the like Boston peoples. And this is very much Boston is the seat of the abolitionist movement. This, I mean, Massachusetts broadly, but this is where. The most ardent, yes. outspoken, hard nosed, hard line abolitionists are. This is where they're fundraising. This is where they're meeting. This is where they're organizing. So he's surrounded by this really from the beginning. Yes, of
2: his life, very much. And in those days, the liberal party is the Republican Party. And he goes through a couple different party affiliations as different parties will take a more and more progressive stance on slavery and on abolition. He like goes to whatever the most liberal party is that eventually winds up being republican but he goes he's a Whig for a while and he's a couple of different things but he from his earliest days is passionately against slavery he's a huge abolitionist he learns this from his father his father tells him that we need not only do we need to abolish slavery but african americans need to be brought to equality with white men and for 1850 the 1850s this is hugely radical yeah like not
1: today, but back then, this
2: is like crazy pants radical. And so he's super duper
1: liberal. Yeah, they're sort of abolitionists. And there are many people, particularly in this part of the country, that would call themselves that. But then to say, you know, Black Americans need to be brought to an equal place in society, that would have been a very far radicalized position, even in this era,
0: particularly.
2: Right. So this is so he's like left he is going to and it's important to mention in those days and for a while afterward senators aren't popularly elected so we don't go to the polls and elect the senator from whatever state you're from the state votes and then Basically, the state legislature like appoints whoever they want to be senator, essentially. And so he's not elected. He's actually, well, he's elected by the state legislature, but that's a much more narrow constituency there. It's like a three-month debate about sending him because he's kind of super liberal, and he like wins by one vote to go to the Senate for Massachusetts. He changes, and this is a real shift. He's going to replace Daniel Webster, who is fascinating and had spent his entire career basically compromising and the shift to Sumner is basically like all right we're done compromising here compromise portion yeah abolition is where we're going compromising portion of the program is over we're moving towards like abolition and like real principled opposition to slavery and that's kind of where we are he's elected in 1851 so this we're gonna this is gonna take place. He's approaching reelection, so he is gonna have to stand for reelection in the fall of 1856. So that's where we kind of are when the, this all goes down. And then we should talk about Kansas Nebraska.
1: Yeah. So a little bit about the Kansas Nebraska Act. You know, we're trying to figure out as we grow. How are we going to add states? How are we going to continue to sort of have this balance? We had the Missouri Compromise, and then we sort of decide, and by we, I mean, you know, some people decide that perhaps we just need to let let, let popular sovereignty determine the best way to do these things. The bill is actually introduced by Stephen Douglas, who we've certainly touched on in previous episodes. This is going to be a pivotal moment for Douglas because it's going to be sort of staking him as no longer a more progressive member and sort of becoming more of the sort of compromise 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 candidate but he's going to present this sort of piece of legislation and it's to organize the territory of nebraska so that's what it's going to be but then we're sort of like hey we're going to do this we'll do kind of like a little bit of a middle ground thing we're going to have this popular sovereignty and let people decide whether or not their state or territory is going to be freed or slave and so this is something that douglas puts forward as a compromise bill but what it really does is take away the more middle ground, I think, of the Missouri Compromise.
2: Right. It basically guts the Missouri Compromise and sort of eliminates the idea. And basically, like, it lets the states decide before they're admitted. And Nebraska's like, cool, we don't like slavery. We don't want it. Okay, thanks. Bye. But Kansas is like, well, do we now? And Kansas (laughs) is going to get a lot of what were known at the time as border ruffians, which is... Term. Okay. We should have more ruffians, I think. Uh, but anyway, they come from Missouri, which is why they're called border ruffians because they cross the state border, and they're pro-slavery, and they're going to mix it up, and they're going to. There are several violent clashes. With the abolitionist element in Kansas. And so this whole debate basically seizes the nation and, like, the whole nation like focuses on Kansas. We've mentioned John Brown at a couple different points and touched on him. And at some point, we'll do a whole pot about John Brown because he's deeply interesting. John Brown's most known for his raid on Harper's Ferry, which has not happened yet. That's a couple years away. But the thing he does before is he, there's a massacre in a place called Kansas called Potawatomi that he's involved in. And so he's in Kansas for a while and then he's back in Connecticut for a while John Brown kind of moves around a bit but he is involved here too he is as Sumner a staunch abolitionist Um, and so he is deeply like committed to Kansas being free and not slave so that's where we are so the whole nation is divided about this they're focused on Kansas and in May of 1856 May 19th, to be precise, Charles Sumner is going to get onto the floor of the United States Senate, and he's going to give a speech.
1: And to be clear, Sumner is opposed to this plan. He's opposed to the idea of this divide, and he really, really, really is unhappy with Senator Stephen Douglas coming up with this idea. And when Sumner gets onto the floor to talk about his opposition to it all really of this, does. it's going to get real if personal. If not the most
2: liberal senator, class. then definitely like on that edge of the caucus. And speeches in those days generally go for a long time. Like he's not the only one who can speak for hours, but he could talk. And this speech is a banger. It's real. It's a great speech. We're going to quote part of it. Honestly, we could have quoted a lot of it cuz it's a big. It's awesome. He is it's incredibly like detailed and he does a couple of things. First of all, he's going to name names. So he's going to call people out specifically from the floor of the Senate as being basically bad news and like slave owning and therefore evil. The specific person that he calls out is a Senator, a fellow Senator named Andrew Butler, who's from South Carolina. Calling out a fellow Senator is big by name, like in the Senate record. The senators today, and especially back then when it was smaller, They all like to think of themselves as like a club. They're all friendly. Everybody gets along. We're
1: all like the world's greatest deliberative body, right? That's why you still hear sort of the turns of phrase, you know, my friend from Illinois or, you know, my respectable colleague from South Carolina. There's so much of this like language of sort of this genteel respectability. Mm -hmm. And that was really important in the 19th century. And certainly people would have had kind of veiled threats or sort of these illusions, but to actually call someone out by name in 1856 was already like super intense. And then to use the language that Sumner ends up using is even more eyebrow raising.
2: It's crazy. He's calling out a fellow senator and he's saying some stuff, man. So I'm going to, this is a little bit of a long quote, but we're going to do it and it's going to be really great. So this is all (laughs) a direct quote from the speech. The senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he made his vows and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. Let her be impeached in character or any proposition made to shut her out from the extension of her wantonness. And no extravagance of manner or hardihood of assertion is then too great for this senator.
1: So he's used the word harlot. He's used sexual imagery. He's basically said that this guy is no chivalrous gentleman. I mean, these are like just boom, boom, boom.
2: And it's also like this sexual imagery is not... Not an accident. They use this a lot. It's part of the abolitionist lexicon. Abolitionists are charging enslavers with enforcing this idea of slavery so that they can have essentially... Forcible sexual relations on their slaves. And so this is very much part and parcel of the abolitionists idea of how to talk about slavery. The sexual imagery is in no way unique to Sumner, but this is explicit. It's incendiary. He's then going to compare Senator Butler to Don Quixote. And there's a lot in this speech. It's a, it's a big deal. And Butler is not on the floor for this. So he's not in Washington. He doesn't like witness this. And in those days, like, there's no C-SPAN, obviously, so there's no, like, video of this. There's no live stream. Right, there's no live stream. <laughs> <laughs> but Stephen Douglas is there. And Stephen Douglas is like,
1: this isn't. He's not happy because Sumner on the floor called Douglas a noisome squat and nameless animal and not a proper model for an American senator. So, like, you know, he called Douglas out, although not quite as... um descriptively and vividly as he did Senator Butler, but Douglas has had his face kind of smudged into the mud there and he witnesses this and he realizes that this is going to be a problem because it's not going to take long for Butler to hear this. And there were other members of the Southern caucus, as it were, other members from the South. And they understand that while Sumner's talking about Butler, he's talking about all of them
2: right and douglas even kind of remarks to a friend while listening to this speech that this damn fool is going to get himself killed by some other damn fool like you can hear like stephen douglas is like this is bad this is going to lead to something bad and typically reaction to this speech is divided the north is cheering him on the south is horrified by the speech and one person from the south in particular is going to have a very bad reaction this guy his name is preston brooks he is a representative from south carolina he's a cousin to andrew butler so they're like cousins they're buds they're dudes they're both from south carolina and i heard some i read somewhere and i honestly can't remember where and so i can't fact check this but i read that in south carolina pre-civil war you had to own a minimum of 10 slaves before you could stand for federal office. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. And if there's some historian out there that wants to fact check me on this, it's perfectly fine that I'm wrong, because I don't remember where I read it. But it doesn't also surprise me either. A lot of the, you know, the South Carolina is using the three-fifths compromise, which is in the Constitution, to inflate their numbers so they have additional representation, more than their voting population would indicate they should have. They're all enslavers, they're obviously all men, and they're all white. And so they a lot of them and they're they kind of all know each other you know they're all from the same echelon the same class it is not especially surprising given how the south was and given how white men at the time were that their cousins are you know one in the house and one in the senate from the same family essentially and brooks is a congressman he incidentally he uses a cane, so he's a bit of a hothead. He got injured in a duel, as shot as a younger man, uh, and so walks with a limp, and therefore has a cane. That's going to be important in a minute.
1: He was also expelled from college before graduating because he threatened local police officers with firearms. So it gives you maybe a sense of how hot-headed he is. This guy's out there dueling. He's out there getting into fights with cops, Um, which to get expelled, I feel like, from college when you are sort of a white-connected male is pretty, in this era, pretty surprising. So it must have been fairly aggressive. Yeah.
2: And Preston Brooks doesn't handle this great. He gets all upset. He rants and raves. I'm guessing there was some adult language used. And the person that he rants and raves to is a fellow South Carolina representative named Lawrence Kite. And Kite says that he should challenge Sumner to a duel. And Brooks says, no, dueling is for gentlemen of equal social standing. (laughs) And he is not a gentleman. No better than a drunkard. That's what Preston Brooks says to Charles is, particularly due to the coarse language he used. He's not a gentleman. He used this violent sexual imagery uh, and is, so therefore is a drunkard. And Brooks then says that because he's no gentleman, he does not get honorable treatment. He deserves to be beaten like a dog. And so that is what Brooks is going to resolve to do.
1: And it's sort of, you know, it just to take a minute, it's boggling, mind boggling, I think, today to sort of think that this is how this would be handled. But certainly, as we've touched on in many of our previous episodes, people did duel, there was violence. This is an overwhelmingly heavily male masculine environment. There's this almost overinflated sense of honor and reputation. And so this is by no means the first time that the members of Congress have come to blows, but it is really significant given what's going on politically and what's about to occur, right? Where this sort of falls on that spectrum. But by no means is this the first time we've seen two members of Congress go head to head in a physical way.
2: No. And they, they yell at each other and congressional debates are heated still even, but violence is not, it's not unknown, but it is not common. Yes. And normally like they settle their differences away from the Capitol. Like if you have a d- dispute, you like challenge somebody to a thing and they do something and dueling is illegal in the district. So you'll go over the line to Maryland and do it there. And it's not unheard of but it's also not really common either and brooks and kite have gotten themselves all with a head of steam you know they're all upset and three days after the speech they're going to march across the capitol from the house side to the senate side and the capitol in those days this is the 1850s it would have been under construction so they would have been in the midst of this renovation that, that they took the whole decade and they enter the uh, senate chamber And Sumner is in there. He's seated at his desk. Then, like now, senators have assigned desks. So you get one desk. And they have this really weird tradition of signing the inside of their desk. So you use the same desk that somebody or other used. And the desks are bolted to the floor. Still are, from what I understand. This is going to be outcome important in a minute. Brooks approaches him yelling about the speech And he says, I have read your speech over. It is a libel on South Carolina. And Mr. Butler, Senator Butler, who's a relative of mine, Brooks very calmly announces this to him and Sumner starts to stand and Preston Brooks takes his cane and beats him over the head with it. The force of this is going to be so severe that Sumner immediately loses his sight, like he can't see. And he's trapped in this desk. like he was trying to get up. he can't quite get up because the desk is bolted to the ground. he's a big guy. Charles Sumner was well over six feet. so he's very tall and he kind of gets tangled in the desk and he can't see and he's being beaten and he can't see where the the blows are coming from. So imagine like all of this chaos. And he's eventually going to rip the desk from its bolts on the floor in order to get away and he's blind at this point he's bleeding so badly he can't, he's blinded there's blood everywhere and he's kind of staggered out the aisle up the aisle he's trying to defend himself but he can't see where he's going and Brooks continues he follows him and continues to hit him without mercy ultimately Summers going to pass out now he's screaming. And the floor of the Senate, like, first of all, let's mention for a fact, this is happening on the floor of the United States Senate. If this were modern day, there'd be cameras, which is probably why it doesn't happen modern day. And they're not the only two people in the room either. So this is a full, not quite entirely full, but this is a room with other people. And you might be wondering why doesn't someone help him? Because Preston Brooks doesn't come alone. He comes with his buddy Lawrence Kite, who pulls a pistol and keeps everybody back. So all the the other senators who want to aid him, uh, aid the poor Senator Sumner, are held back uh, at gunpoint. There's a second guy, Edmondson, a second representative that's with Brooks and Kite, who's also there as well. He's helping to sort of hold people back. And Sumner is before he passes out, begging for help, Brooks continues to hit him, and being he's people are begging him not to kill Senator Sumner, and eventually, two representatives eventually uh, intervene. Representatives Ambrose Murray and Edwin Morgan finally intervene and restrain Preston Brooks, at which point he basically straightens his jacket, slicks back his hair, and walks out of the Senate chamber unmolested. He beats Sumner until Sumner's unconscious. There's blood everywhere and his cane breaks. In fact, Brooks himself has to seek medical attention. He got hit on a a backswing, kind of got a cut on his forehead near his eye uh, and had to get medical attention himself. So this is a, this is big. I mean, this is like literal insanity. A senator has gotten beaten on the floor of the United States Senate in full view of other representatives from all across the country and it makes i mean to say that it makes headlines is to like sort of vastly understate what happens this is like huge news
1: probably the biggest news story of the year, honestly. I mean, this is the moment, right? And and it's everybody's talking about it, the North and the South. And you can imagine that the perspective in the newspapers is going to vary vastly based on who is writing this. And I don't just mean, obviously in the South, they support Brooks and in the North, they support Sumner. There are going to be voices that are gonna say, look, this is why we need to compromise. This is why we need to work with them. They're gonna be members of Congress who say, am I to wait till I get my head bashed in, this is going to be people who are going to call to back off the abolitionist cause. So you're going to have a wide array of responses to this event. And it just illustrates how fractured we are, not just between abolition and not, but how to move forward as a country and how to work together, if at all.
2: So the outrage is completely different. on Depends on where you are and what your view on slavery is. And they're martyrs on both sides, right? Sure, sure, sure. And it just is... It's typically hugely divided. Brooks is going to get arrested because that actually is what happens when you assault somebody in full view of lots of witnesses. He gets tried and fined $300, which would be just shy of $10,000 in today's money. So not an insignificant, but not a terribly huge amount of money. Doesn't get jail time. There is a motion to expel him from the house, which fails. So they can't expel him but he's going to resign his seat. Basically, he says that he should let his constituents weigh in on his behavior, knowing perhaps that his constituents are going to do exactly what they did, which is immediately him. <laughs> so this happens in May. He resigns about two months later after he's paid his fine. And then a couple of weeks after that is immediately reelected. And then reelected again to serve another full term. In November of 1856 so his constituents have no problems with any of this and, in fact, hearing that he had broken his cane. While assaulting Sumner supporters all across the South are going to send him new canes he gets hundreds of new canes in the mail.
1: I went to college in Virginia, and one of my professors was an alumni of the University of Virginia. And when we did Sumner in our Civil War seminar, he said that he had a professor who very proudly back in the 1950s said that the men of the University of Virginia sent a gold-plated cane to Preston Brooks with the inscription, whack him again for us. So And that's just one one of hundreds and hundreds that were sent. And they're sent from prestigious institutions. They're sent from fraternal organizations. They're sent by individuals. His colleagues, Brooks's Southern colleagues in Congress, will make rings out of the remains of his broken cane and wear them as a sign of support. So this is going Mm -hmm. to be a very visible, physical representation of the fact that they endorse this violence. Absolutely. And in fact, are willing to encourage it beyond if necessary
2: right and they he brooks himself will brag the remnants of the cane are treated like sacred relics which is amazing and he leaves the cane behind like as he's like exiting the room he leaves the cane it's broken into pieces one of his colleagues edmondson the guy who's helping to hold off people he's going to collect some of the fragments that's what's used to make into these like memorial rings and stuff it's crazy Preston Brooks, I also should mention, he dies within a year. Oh, no. Completely unrelated. Oh, how sad. I know. He is elected to serve another full term in November, but before he can take his seat in January, he dies of the croup. And apparently a very violent outbreak. So he dies in some agony, actually, which is, some might say, poetic justice. (laughs) Sumner, poor Charles Sumner, he's been beaten within an inch of his life. It's a miracle
1: that he doesn't die right there on the Senate
2: floor. It really is a miracle. If the cane hadn't been broken, I bet he wasn't far from it. It takes him years to recover. In some ways, he never really does. He'll suffer debilitating headaches and what we would call post-traumatic stress for the rest of his life. It takes him, he recovers like from his physical injuries within about a year and he tries to go back to work and just, he can't do it. Like literally physically tries to enter the Senate chamber and like has essentially what we would call a flashback and it takes him two more years before he can come back. He was up for reelection in the fall and there is talk in Massachusetts about replacing him. He, at this point by November, he is in no condition to legislate, but Massachusetts says no we're not doing that. We're going to reelect him and cover his seat in a black cloth and let that black cloth stand for our injured senator. And so we only have one senator and the other senator, Henry Wilson, we've mentioned him in a few episodes too. He's Massachusetts second senator. Indeed. Yes, we have. He's a little more scandalous, Henry Wilson. So Henry Wilson will frequently mention his colleague there were all sorts of senators from around the north will frequently reference their fallen comrade and how he's injured and how like they're down a person and this Sumner's name will be invoked repeatedly uh in the ensuing three years until he kind of is able to come back so it, d- it takes him three years so through like 1859 which is the eve of the war essentially for him to sort of come back uh, and continue to legislate. And the aftermath of this is long. This is one of the big signpost moments on the road to the Civil War. And I think part of it is not only is the event itself terribly shocking, like violence is erupting on the floor of the Senate, but also everyone's reaction to it really underlines how divided the country is. There is no one in the South who sees Brooks as anything less than a hero. And there is no one up North who sees Sumner as anything less than a murder. And the two sides just don't meet. There's no overlap. There's no common ground. That is such a symbol of how divided everyone is about this, this event, about slavery, about the South. It's such a symbol of how off the rails we have gone. We are in two completely different dimensions. Almost two different realities, almost. And so that it really is this huge signpost. And also the fact that the South endorses this violence is also really telling. It isn't about words anymore. We're not just yelling and screaming at each other. We're actually being violent to each other. And no one in the South seems to really have a big problem with that. And that's concerning, too. That's what's going to give people, particularly people up north, it's going to give them a lot of pause like, wow, they're really willing to like endorse and condone this.
1: Well, and this is why Kansas will become known as Bleeding Kansas. It's going to put fuel in the fire on the grounds there. There's going to be increasingly violent clashes between sort of pro-slavery and abolitionist forces. Ralph Waldo Emerson has, I think, one of the best reactions to this when he sort of writes in a newspaper about this attack and really talks about how can this divide after this incident? He essentially says, I do not see how a barbarous community and a civilized community can constitute one state. I think we must get rid of slavery or we must get rid of freedom. And two years later, this is exactly what Abraham Lincoln's going to say. A house divided cannot stand if this is going to be the path forward. Our country cannot survive. We cannot exist in this stasis. And we start to see sort of that increasing acknowledgement and recognition that the time for compromise is past. that violence is very likely inevitable uh, in this regard, and that we are going to come to war over this issue. This is fuel for the fire in the 1856 election,
2: Uh, so we're electing a new president. 1856 is a presidential year, so this is going to be a big deal. I also would like to just mention the guy who's with him, Lawrence Kite, he gets censured. In the aftermath of this by the House of Representatives. He resigns in protest, but just like his buddy, his constituents ratify his conduct by sending him right back to the House of Representatives. In 1858, two years later, he's going to attempt to choke Another abolitionist representative on the floor of the House, a guy named Galusha Grow of Republican uh, or of Pennsylvania, for saying some nasty things about him on the floor of the House. So, Kite, this is not his last brush with violence. This is going to be used extensively in the campaign in 1856. And this really is such a great example of where uh, the country grows uh, and how far apart they have gotten. Sumner returns a few years later and serves three more terms. He is going to continue to hold down the radical liberal wing of the Republican Party. He is very active in Reconstruction. He is going to spearhead the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. So he's very much going to anchor that portion of the supports, not only abolition, uh, but also equal rights and education uh, for newly freed slaves. He's a big, He gets involved in the Freedmen's Bureau. He's very involved in that. This becomes sort of the cause of his life in the... Aftermath, he is going to die. And he's so celebrated, in fact, that when he dies, he will become only the second non-president to lie in State in the United States Capitol building. The first one was Henry Clay, in fact. Uh, and so he, die- he has this long, illustrious career uh, and dies as a sort of seen as a statesman, whereas Brooks sort of, he is seen as a bit of a hero in the South, but that kind of fades as we, his memory fades quickly. But Sumner actually has a, a really distinguished career in the Senate.
1: And certainly this unfortunately tragic and violent incident does make Sumner a national and international name. A million copies of of his speech that day are distributed. And think about in 1856 what a million copies of something is. Everybody would have read it. North and South, and whether they agreed with it was a different story, but everybody knew who he was. And then the fact that he's able to, despite this horrific event, sort of come back and build a really important career. He's got an incredible legacy today. For those of you who visit Harvard and Boston, uh, there is a statue to Sumner at Harvard. Um, He attended Harvard. Um, He was, you know, in a club. He was, you know, this is just, you know, I'm not going to try to act like he's like a hard scrabble, you know, From nothing guy. He was very connected, but he is honored at Harvard today. And I think it is worth noting, but there are still a few places in America named for Preston Brooks. And there was actually a little bit of controversy in a town in Florida where some people said, hey, maybe we should change the name of Brooksville, Florida. And they said, no, we're good. Um, they did sort of rewrite their website so that Brooks was not written about in such a flattering light, but they just decided as recently as a few years ago that they're cool with the name's provenance. So I think it speaks to sort of that, like an interesting still reality about our country, right, and the way in which we view something like the Sumner-Brooks attack.
2: Yes, there is a a several towns in the immediate aftermath of this are named for him including one in virginia that then becomes part of west virginia and west virginia is immediately like no we're going to change the name of this town we're not here for this and so they changed the name so it was very quickly brooksville uh in west virginia and now there no longer is but yeah there it's um several towns are named after continue to be named after preston brooks and i have to say that is a choice It's, it's a choice I
1: so um, just think we should put it out there.
2: Yep, yep. Uh, but that is Charles Sumner. And I think this is such a really interesting incident. It really illustrates just how, and I think this is part of why maybe January 6 bothers us as historians a lot, like violence on the floor of Congress is something, this is really traumatic. It is a traumatic moment uh, in American history that we're attacking each other in the in the halls of Congress, um, and so this is, I think, why Sumner and Brooks is such a big, um, important
1: deal. This is, um, I think, as tour guides, a story that we enjoys not the right word, but that we take. I think some 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 pleasure in sort of sharing for those that don't and as often can happen on tours especially with student groups uh, those who haven't heard of this yet it's sort of a shock but it's also such an important illustration of kind of where america is five years before the civil war and the outbreak of the civil war and it's one that i think is really illuminating in a single incident it's sort of a great um, illumination of kind of where we are as a country and so it's one that you will find on my tours frequently And I know, I know yours as well. And I love Charles Sumner. We could have done a whole episode of just Sumner quotes, one from his three-hour speech because they're all exceptionally quotable, but just Sumner quotes in general. He becomes almost Benjamin Franklin-esque in his later life in terms of having some really tasty little bon mots about like humanity and democracy and men and women. And he writes a little bit uh, in his later years sort of about his reflections on philosophy. And I just, he's an eminently quotable guy. So we will drop in the show notes maybe a few uh, good Sumner quotes and we'll do a full link to the speech so that you can really see just how dramatic it was yes and
2: that's it so we're we'll be back we're ready 2023 we're at we're here for some fun stuff and um we'll be back in a couple of weeks
1: thank you guys for coming along thank you guys so much we'll see you um soon happy new year happy new year